Well, shall we pray again and ask for God's help as we come to his word? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful privilege of having your word in our own language. And Lord, we do pray now that as we open up your word, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would take up the word of God and be at work in each of our lives and in the life of the church here, that you might be glorified and that we might live lives that are pleasing to you. So Lord, we ask for the help that only the Holy Spirit can give. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, if you'd like to turn back to Psalm 95, please. Uh, We're going to be focusing our attention and our thoughts and indeed our worship uh, on the words of Psalm 95 this morning. I don't know if you've ever had the experience as a child of wandering off in a supermarket and getting a little bit lost. After a, a few moments, you look around and your parents weren't there. What happens? Well, well, panic sets in, doesn't it? Both for you and soon for your parents as they notice uh, that you've gone. We've all heard that Tannoy announcement, haven't we, with the parents of little Jimmy, please come to customer services uh, straight away. Maybe you can remember that happening to you as a child or maybe a, a sibling Or maybe you can remember that as a parent happening uh, to your old children as well. Children wandering off. A child wandering off from the safety and protection, familiarity, loving embrace of a mother or a father. And that's the big theme of Psalm 95. Rather than worship God... We're prone to wander, aren't we? We're prone to wander away from the safety, protection, familiarity, and loving brace of the Lord. Psalm 95 is rooted in the Old Testament, the story of God's people in the Old Testament. God's people leaving Egypt at the Exodus and all of the events that followed on their way to the Promised Land. It is a psalm that has both worship and warning right at the heart of it. It's a call to worship God, isn't it? But it's also a call to avoid unbelief. A call to worship God, but also a call to avoid unbelief. A call to worship the only God who is worthy of our worship. Not to harden our hearts against him. Not to to wander away from him. But to worship him for who he is. Not to wander away, not to seek after lesser lights and fleeting shadows. Not to to seek after other things that claim our allegiance. Not not to to seek after other uh, gods, so to speak. But it's a call to worship the Lord while avoiding unbelief. A call to worship the Lord while avoiding unbelief. And that's what we want to think about uh, this morning. So we see firstly in this psalm in verses 1 to the first part of verse 7, a call to worship the Lord. A call to worship the Lord. Do do look at Psalm 95 verses 1 to 7. In verses 1 and 2 and 6 of this psalm, the psalmist calls on the people to God to come and to worship. To come and to worship. In fact, three times 
uh, the psalm uses that little word come and six times he uses that little phrase let us let us come come let us worship let's join our voices together and praise the Lord that's the call in this psalm isn't it let's come in verse 1 and and sing to the Lord let's come as it says in verses 1 and 2 to shout joyfully to the Lord in verse 2 come into his presence with thanksgiving so come and worship the Lord worship the Lord joyfully worship the Lord thankfully let us acknowledge that he is God and, and we are not. That, that, that he is on the throne, that he is the main actor on stage and we are not. Verse 6 says, doesn't it? Let us come and worship and bow down. What does that mean? Well, let us adopt that position of humble worship. Acknowledging who it is that we have come to worship. So let us come into God's presence in worship joyfully and thankfully, humbly. But that begs the question, doesn't it? Who is this God that we're called to worship? Who is he? Is he worthy of our worship? We all know, don't we, whether you've been watching it or not, we all know that the World Cup is on at the moment. And sometimes, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but sometimes... When a footballer scores a goal, you can see some of the fans behind the goal bowing down to that player because of the goal that they have just scored because of who they are. Now, we all know, don't we, that that player is not worthy of worship. No matter how good a player they are, no matter how good a goal that they have scored, they are not worthy of our worship. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. The Bible very clearly reminds us that only our triune God is worthy of worship. But still we ask the question, why? Why is he? Well, what does the psalm tell us about the Lord? What, what picture does the psalm paint of who this God is that we're called to worship? Why is the Lord worthy of our worship? Well, notice what the psalm says. He's worthy of our worship, firstly, because he is the king. Because he is the king, verse 3. For the Lord is the great God. And the great king above all gods. We worship the Lord because he is the great king. The sovereign Lord. The one who has got no rivals, no competitors, no equals. Although the ancient world was full of so-called gods. None of them could match up to. None of them could come close to the great king above all gods. As King David could put it in. Psalm 86 and verse 8, Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. So we worship the Lord, joyfully, thankfully, humbly, because he is the king. We praise him, we bow down to him, we worship him, because he is the unrivaled, the undisputed king, the sovereign Lord, the one who is worthy of our worship. So we worship the Lord because he is the king. But what else are we told in Psalm 95? Well, secondly, we worship the Lord because he is the maker. Because he is the maker. Notice verses 4 to 6. It says, In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. 
He is our maker. Verses 4 and 5 of this psalm are a little bit like Genesis chapter 1 in bite size, aren't they? It's a, a little summary and reminder that God is the creator, God is the maker. A succinct reminder as we read in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 that in the beginning God made, God said, God did, God created. The God who spoke and said, let there be, is the God that we're called upon here to let us worship. He is worthy of our worship. Why? Because he is the maker. He is the creator. He is the one that we depend upon for life and breath and all things. Without him we would not be. He is worthy of our worship because of that. That The depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains, the seas, all of creation are his. He is the author. He is the creator. He is the maker. We can look out, can't we, over the the yellow fields of the Lincolnshire walls in in, in the springtime and we can be amazed by the maker's handiwork. Just like a a book points to an author or a a painting points to a painter or a, a sculpture points to a sculptor, so creation points to the creator. The one, as verse six reminds us, who is worthy of our worship. He is the great king, the sovereign Lord, and the maker of it all. He is worthy of our worship. But Psalm 95 also reminds us that this God is not distant. You see, we we could be mistaken for thinking that that such a great God as this, who is sovereign, who is the maker of it all, the one that we depend upon for all things, we could be mistaken for thinking that, that that God was distant, Out there somewhere. A God that we could never really know because he was so great, so big. But yet Psalm 95 reminds us that God is not distant. He is not unknown. He is not unknowable. No, he can be known. He can be known personally by people like you and me. Sinful people like you and like me. He can be known, this great God. You see, in verse 1 of this psalm, we're reminded that not only is he the, 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 the king and the maker, but he is our saviour as well. He is our saviour. Oh, come, verse 1, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. The rock of our salvation. We worship the rock of our salvation. Now, the psalmist here in Psalm 95 <clears throat> has God's miraculous work of salvation at the exodus in mind you may know that story in the old testament when the lord by his grace by his kindness by his mercy by his covenant commitment to his people brought his people out of slavery at the exodus out of egypt through the red sea and heading towards the promised land that's what the psalmist here in psalm 95 has in his mind when he talks about god being his people's salvation And if you think back to that account in the Old Testament, how did Moses respond when God did this, when God saved his people? How did Moses respond? Well, just like Psalm 95, he sang, didn't he? He sang joyfully. He sang thankfully. He sang. He worshipped. He bowed down to God. He sang of the Lord's salvation. If you want to turn back to Exodus chapter 15... I'll read verses 1 and 2. 
Exodus 15, verses 1 and 2. This is after God has miraculously delivered them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Moses stops and we read them. Moses and the children of Israel sang. They sang. They sang this song to the Lord. And they spoke saying, I I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord, notice this, the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Moses sings of God who is his salvation. They worship the Lord because he is their saviour. As New Testament believers, we we can worship God only because of his salvation. His salvation found in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Christ's death and resurrection, our sins can be forgiven. We can have new life in God and we can have a desire to worship God. We worship God and we, we can only worship God because of our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of our rock, who is Christ Jesus. So we see God as our king, as our maker, as our saviour. A God who can be known and can be known by you this morning. And then finally we see the Lord is worthy of our worship. Because he is our shepherd. He is our shepherd. Notice verse 7. For he is our God. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture and the sheep of his hand today, if you will hear his voice. Notice what it says in this verse. He very clearly is the shepherd of his people. The person who has experienced God's salvation can sing, he is my God, he is is our God. This is a God that I know. This is a God that leads me and and guides me and, and directs me. I belong to him. I am guided by his tender, loving hands. A believer can say that. Someone who's experienced God's salvation can say that. I know the safety and protection and familiarity and loving embrace of the, of the shepherd, the shepherd king. Now, I'm sure we all know here this morning Psalm 23, don't we? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But notice what it says right at the start of that psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. He's my shepherd. That, that, that great king, the maker of it all, is, is my shepherd, someone like me, personally. Jesus, the good shepherd, could say in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hands. He is my shepherd. This great, eternal, sovereign, creator God is, is my shepherd. That's something to sing about, isn't it? I don't know if you noticed it when I read through, but three times in Psalm 95, the word hand is used. I'm pointing to my hand just in case you don't understand my accent when I say that word. But three times in Psalm 95, the word hand is used. Twice when talking about God's work of creation, God's handy work of creation in verses four and five, and once in reference to the hand of the shepherd. In verse 7. And it's a wonderful thought isn't it? The hand that formed the creation. Are the same hands that tenderly hold on to us as people. It's a great thought. 
Another Bible translation puts it like this. We are the people that he watches over the flock who is under his care. The hands that that formed, as it were, the creation are the hands that hold tight and tenderly to his people, you and I, if we belong to Christ. So what's going on in Psalm 95? Well, surely the psalmist is building a picture of who this God is that we worship. All of this combined causes us to worship, doesn't it? To sing to the Lord, to to make a joyful noise to the Lord. So this is why the Lord is worthy of our worship. He is the king, he is the maker, he is the saviour, and he is the shepherd. This God is worthy of our worship. He alone is worthy of our worship. An American pastor called Daniel Akin was preaching in Psalm 95, and in that sermon he said this, a God that you cannot sing to is not worthy of your worship. A God that you cannot sing to is not worthy of your worship. But here in Psalm 95, we we, we find a God who is worthy, one that we can sing to. Someone else once said, theology is at its healthiest when it's singing. Theology is at its healthiest when it's singing. Well, Psalm 95 gives us plenty to sing about, doesn't it? So may that always be the response of our hearts when we consider who this God is. You see, our theology not ever to be dry. It ought never to be intellectual. But it ought always to lead us to joyful, thankful, humble worship as we consider who God is. In response to this God, we can sing. We can sing. But you see, Psalm 95 also reminds us as sinful people that our instinct is often to worship something or someone else, isn't it? Like that child in the supermarket that I mentioned earlier, our, our instinct is often to wander away from God into unbelief, to seeking, seeking after other things as if they were God. We see in this Psalm how glorious God is. We, we know deep down that he is worthy of all our worship. We know that with Him, in his hands, there is safety, there is protection, there's familiarity, there's a loving embrace. And yet so quickly we can wander away, can't we? And that's why the second part of this psalm is so helpful. The second part of this psalm is a stark contrast to the first, isn't it? There's a clear call to worship God in the first half. But secondly, very clearly, there is a warning against unbelief a warning against unbelief notice what it says the second part of verse 7 to verse 11 today if you will hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion as in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me they tried me though they saw my work for 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. It's a warning against unbelief, isn't it? I wonder if you've ever asked the question, what is sin? What is sin? Now, there's many answers to that, many good answers to that, but here's how one person defines sin. Sin is a kind of practical atheism. It's acting as if God were not there. 
Sin is a, a kind of practical atheism. It's acting as if God were not there. Something to ponder, isn't it? And I think that's the warning here in Psalm 95. You see, we've been reminded that the Lord is worthy of our worship. He is the king. He is the maker. He is the savior. He is the shepherd. He is worthy of our worship. And yet so quickly and so often, we listen to other voices, don't we? We, we harden our, our hearts in unbelief. As it says in Psalm 95, we, we, in a way we put God to the test. We go astray as if he wasn't our shepherd, as if he was a God out there somewhere that we can't really know. Although it's clear that we should worship God and God alone, we act sometimes as if he wasn't there. And that's the warning here in Psalm 95. A warning actually from history. A warning that we can read about in the pages of our Bible. See, the psalmist goes right back to an incident that happened in Exodus chapter 17. To a time when God's people were wandering off into unbelief. The Lord had saved his people graciously out of Egypt at the Exodus. He had brought them safely through the Red Sea. And and they were making their way through that wilderness to the promised land. But as we know, not long after those miraculous, merciful, gracious events, they begin to grumble, don't they? they? They begin to complain. They begin to complain to Moses that God has somehow abandoned them in the wilderness. They, they had experienced all of the events around the Exodus. Wonderful, marvelous, and miraculous events. And then they begin to complain, to grumble. We, we read in Exodus 16, Verses 2 and 3, and they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then we read this. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat. And when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, I understand as well as anybody that when we get hungry, we get a little bit grumpy. But that's not what's going on here. You see, underneath their complaint for food, there was something going on. It was unbelief. They were beginning to wander off. Beginning to forget who God is, the God who had brought them out of Egypt. Despite their groanings and their sighings, the Lord, well, what did the Lord do? Well, he graciously provided for them. He, he gave them quail, he gave them bread from heaven to satisfy their needs, to satisfy their hunger. But then as we read on, it's not long before they're actually complaining again. If you want to flick over to Exodus chapter 17... I'll read the first seven verses. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we might drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? 
And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? It's the same complaint, isn't it? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, now notice what they said, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us? Or not? This is the passage that Psalm 95 has in mind, isn't it? See, on the surface, they're complaining about a lack of food. They're, they're complaining about a lack of water. But underneath, there's, there's something else going on. There's a deeper issue underneath their, their felt needs at the time. And that issue is unbelief. Is the Lord among us or is he not? Of course, the Lord was among them. He proved that time and time and time again. They were in his hands. They had clearly, as verse 9 in the psalm says, they had clearly seen his work. The, the, the assumption there is that they had seen his work time and time and time again in the past. He had proved himself. But still they hardened their hearts against him. Rather than worship the Lord for who he is, they wander away. Rather than thank the Lord, they test the Lord. The Lord has shown himself to be the king, the maker, the saviour, the shepherd, time and time again. But they ask the question, where is he? Is he among us or is he not? Basically, they're acting like he isn't there. That he can't meet their needs. That he's not a God for that situation. And notice in the psalm that their unbelief didn't stop after those two incidents. They didn't really learn their lesson. In fact, it was part and parcel of their 40-year wandering in the wilderness. Verse 10 says that for 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. The sense of that verse is it's a people that always go astray. And I think he has an incident in Numbers Chapters 13 and 14 in mind here. Do you remember when the majority of the spies, apart from Joshua and Caleb, bring back that negative report of the promised land? The promised land of Canaan. What did they say? Well, the people are too big. They're too formidable. Compared to them, we're just like little grasshoppers. We'll never do it. We'll never make it. But underneath that report, there's unbelief again. Numbers 14 and verse 3. Why has the Lord brought us to this land that we might fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? There they go again. See, the Lord has given them every example and every opportunity that he might be worshipped, he might be trusted. But instead, they continue in unbelief. And we're told, sadly, at the end of the psalm, that that generation would not enter the promised land. God's judgment, God's wrath would come upon them. 
So as we're reminded, they were constantly asking the question, is the Lord among us or is he not? Is he really the king? Is he really the maker? Is he really my savior? Is he really my shepherd? Is he really worthy of all of my worship? Their unbelief said no. But God's word in Psalm 95 says yes. This is why he is worthy of worship. This is why he can be trusted. And this is a a real challenge for us this morning, isn't it? In Hebrews chapter 3, the the author of Hebrews draws on the words of Psalm 95 to make the point that followers of Jesus Christ can fall into unbelief as well. Now, as Jesus reminded his disciples, we can never fall fully. No one can snatch us out of his hands. If we truly belong to Christ, then we will always belong to Christ. But yet the warning is there, isn't it? Sometimes we can start along that path towards unbelief, like the children of Israel. Just after quoting Psalm 95, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3 and verse 12, he says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. See, as believers in Christ, we we know, we know fully, we know finally that, that God is our king, God is our maker, God is our savior, God is our shepherd. We, we've experienced that if we're followers of Christ today. We have every reason to worship God. We have experienced his power, his presence, his protection. And yet we know that we're still sinful. And we know that we're prone to wonder, don't we? Like that child in the supermarket, we can take our eyes off God. We can take our eyes off our loving Father. And very soon, we panic. Like Israel in the wilderness, we can be tempted to ask, is the Lord among us or is he not? We might not express that audibly, but in our hearts, when we close the door at night, we might ask that question, is the Lord among us or not? This is what I'm going through. Is the Lord among us or is he not? What's the antidote to this type of unbelief? How can we choose worship instead of wandering? How can we sing instead of sigh? Well, I think the answer is found in Hebrews chapter 3. If you want to turn over to that chapter, Hebrews 3. I'll read verses 12 to 15. Just after quoting from Psalm 95, we pick up the reading of verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. So how do we avoid unbelief? Well, as the book of Hebrews reminds us, we we avoid unbelief by remembering that we have come to share in Christ, that we belong to Christ, by remembering that, that through Christ and Christ alone that we really do know God as our King, as our Maker, as our Saviour. 
and as our shepherds. We avoid unbelief, this section tells us, by exhorting one another every day. Exhorting our, our fellow believers. By, by, by worshipping together, by, by singing God's praises together. But by, by encouraging and, and helping one another in our faith. By reminding one another that we have got a, a great God. The God of Psalm 95. That we really do belong uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. And our shepherds. But by reminding one another. Especially during times of difficulty. And trial. And unbelief. By reminding one another that we have every reason to praise God. That we have every reason to trust God. That we have every reason to depend upon God. We know that. There's a tendency for unbelief to spring up in our hearts. Like the children of Israel. But rather than wander away. Like that child in the supermarket. We can know the safety and the protection and the familiarity and the the loving embrace of the Lord. And may that be our experience. When unbelief comes our way, may we lift up our eyes to God, remembering who he is. The king, the maker but also the God who is our saviour through Christ and the one who is our shepherd, the one who tenderly holds us in his hands, the one who tenderly leads us along the path of life until we go with him and be with him forevermore. So may that be our experience. Here in Psalm 95, we have a call to worship the Lord, but there's a warning against unbelief. May we take that warning on board but may we look up to God in joyful, thankful, humble at worship. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. Lord, thank you for the wonderful truth of your word. Thank you that time and time and time again your word points us upwards calling on us to to worship you because you're worthy of our worship lord we do confess that often we're prone to wonder prone to leave the the god that we love but lord we do pray that as uh, your word has been opened and preached today you would draw us back that we might have that renewed uh, desire to worship you for who you are that we might worship instead of wandering. So Lord, we do pray that you would speak on through your word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.